There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. And this is Praz the Sandman, giving you all sweet dreams over the radio wave today. And sweet dreams through use of a new orange belt, I believe, Praz? Why, yes, that's right. Just this past Monday, I earned my orange belt in Taekwondo. So I believe now you can not only heal people, you can also break them. Working there, sort of, one step at a time. Let's just say I'm working on new ways to knock people out. Thinking outside of the box, you could say. <laughs> That's what I love, seeing an anesthesiologist who's truly dedicated to their work. Any means possible. <laughs> so what other places do you think you might travel to to increase your training? Are we looking at a Batman situation here? Are you going up into the high Himalayas? Are you going deep sea? Where, where are you going to travel to improve there's a lot of different places you could go to. Traveling to the mountains would be pretty good. Anywhere in the Far East. One place that I think we're um, starting to see show up now is Egypt. Interesting. Tell me more. Why? What, what sort of health things are you doing in Egypt? Egypt is starting to come onto the scene and really advertising as a, a new center for helping with hepatitis C therapy. Well, this sounds a lot like medical tourism. When people decide that some treatment is either unavailable or too expensive in their home country and they fly out to somewhere where there are different techniques, docs, or cheaper treatments available. That's exactly what it is. And not only is it medical tourism, but there's a new program in Egypt that's offering tourism tourism with medical tourism, a so-called... Tour and cure. No, this is the real deal here. 
of course, hepatitis C is, is a really big problem in the medical world. It's, it's something that usually doesn't kill people outright. It's, you get infected with it, most commonly via sharing of drugs or through sexual contact or, you know, back before we had better screening processes for our blood through blood transfusions. And it is, I think, still after alcoholic cirrhosis, the leading cause of liver cirrhosis and leading to liver transplants. And of course, in the last couple of years, we have been able to develop a couple different drugs that can be curative for hepatitis C, but they have been remarkably expensive and by and large unavailable to the general population. I should um, preface this by saying um, to the general, to everyone out there listening, this is not to be confused with hepatitis A or hepatitis B, both of which have vaccines that can prevent uh, transmission. Um, what makes hepatitis C, what made it particularly dangerous for a long time, is that it really, there was nothing anyone could do to protect themselves from getting it. Um, and like Josh was saying, once you have it, your liver slowly deteriorates so you'll need a, a liver transplant. You get a liver, keep that liver for about 20 years. I've seen people come in for their second liver transplant. It was really quite a surgery. It's a very long and dangerous procedure to even get a new liver. And you can understand how people who have this virus for a long time really um, suffered and had a lot of big issues because of it. Well, not to mention getting a transplant of any organ is still going to be a very, very long wait and expensive even with comparison to this curative hepatitis C treatment. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, certainly we can take more time in another episode to really go in depth as to what hepatitis is and what it does, but this is everybody's favorite, you know, alternate week episode, which is, of course, our journal club. Yay! Yay! <laughs> and, and even though this week we're going to focus on animals, I love that... Medical tourism, true, honest-to-goodness medical tourism is a thing. Now, I've been to Egypt, Praz, and I'll tell you, you know, I got a chance to visit a museum of pathology there, and of course I poked and prodded at the mummies and studied some of the natural diseases that take place in the Nile and a whole bunch of things, but I'm looking at this at this website for Tour and Cure, and for 6000 bucks, which I have to tell you, my my trip to Egypt did not fall very far from that price line, and I didn't get cured of anything there. In fact, I came back with one of the worst sunburns I've had in my life. Ooh. Yeah, but during the one-week program, you get introduced to a team of their hepatology doctors who have really been kind of coming from all over the world, although this this organization is in Egypt itself, and they perform all the medical checkups, laboratory tests, and give you the full course of treatment most suitable for your case. So I, it does sound like not everybody gets the, the $10,000 drug or the liver transplant, but they're really trying to pull people in and turning this into a destination site for people with liver disease. So they've developed two different packages for patients to receive treatment in Cairo or Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, and then you get a choice of recreation while the treatment is taking place. Um, oh. So some of the things they take you to see, 
You get to stay in a five-star hotel while receiving your treatment, and if you choose the northern option with Cairo, you, of course, get to see the Nile River, the Sphinx, and the pyramids. And if you go to Sharm el-Sheikh, that's the big diving, snorkeling scuba area right off the Red Sea, and that has crystal clear waters, and you can stop by and see Luxor and Aswan, which are there. So I thought, why get cured in Egypt? Eh, why not? Um, during the last 12 months, they, they claim to have 830,000 patients who are cured and over 1 million patients treated. The registration on the website looks pretty darn straightforward and easy. And the treatment protocols that they've adopted are also put right up on the website. Now, the usual treatments of hepatitis are several drugs. Um, the one that is the most common is interferon, which is what we've been using for years, with ribavirin, and a drug that I'm not familiar with called sofosbuvir, which uh, just based on the name sounds like a anti-protease that would have been in the old HIV wheelhouse. And they've used a lot of HIV drugs in treating some of these more chronic types of viruses like hepatitis. Mm. Now, we have, we have lost our, our infectious disease doc for the night who would be able to go into this in much, much more detail. So take it out on him. Send angry speeches to his Twitter or Facebook, but <laughs> we'll get him back on eventually and explain what's going on in these. However, that is a really interesting approach, and I will be fascinated to see how it turns out and if other true medical tourist destinations begin popping up. I should um, conclude this by saying that travel medicine is in no way affiliated with Tour and Cure, although Josh is very, very good at selling this. I <laughs> almost wish I had Hep C right now. Almost. <laughs> I'm sure it could be arranged, but you are correct, Praz. We do not endorse, and we have not even had a chance to in-depth research this site, but it did come across our radar, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up, because it definitely is something that bears watching for the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if any of our listeners out there know of any other Tor and Cure type programs, please leave us some comments on Facebook or Twitter, and we will take a look and let you know what we find. But let's get into the journal articles for this week. I know we love doing medicine. I know we love doing travel. But, Praz, do you know what one thing I love as just a casual way to relax more than anything else? I think it's something that we all, pretty much most of us, medical and non-affiliated medical, would love doing. And that's sitting in front of our TV and binge-watching our latest TV shows. I'm sure most of our viewers are familiar with the show Game of Thrones. You know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> Actually, to confess, I only started watching it in the last couple of years. I held off through most of residency and fellowship. Yeah, I got hooked on that show quite quickly. It's very. Do you have a favorite character? Jon Snow is pretty high on that list. So you have Jon Snow, who knows nothing. Arya Stark, who a girl is no one. And Daenerys, mother of dragons. Now, of course, we all know dragons are fictional creatures, right? Right, of course, obviously. Wrong! Dragons oh. are real! Gasp! 
Tell me more. <laughs> Unfortunately, not the winged creatures riding around conquering the Dothraki that you're hoping for. But we oh, do have oh. we do have Komodo dragons uh, seen on the Komodo Islands, and it turns out that in the blood of these dragons may lie secrets to our future health. And as we've talked about a number of times on this podcast, antibiotic resistance, drug resistance, is one of the biggest problems that we are having to deal with in the medical world today. Uh, Superbugs are popping up that are resistant to one, two, three, or even all of our major classes of antibiotics. And we are starting to even see bugs that are resistant to everything that we really have no treatments for. So, of course, there have been a slew of new antibiotics or antibiotic alternatives that we've commented on on the show and have been discovered, including there's drugs from soil, there are antibiotics designed to incredible hulk their way out of bacteria, but we're really looking in a lot of different places to find new methods of treatment. And in the saliva and the blood of these Komodo dragons have been found the next good candidates. So the Komodo dragons who come from Indonesia, I mean, they, they stay in Indonesia. They're not traveling around, but that's where we found them. So the Komodo dragons... <laughs> Can you picture? Hi, I've recently come from Indonesia, and I'd like to study at your medical school. Rawr! <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. But yeah, so the Komodo dragons of Indonesia have been found to have specific chemical compounds in their blood that destroy bacteria. And these compounds are known as CAMPs, cationic antimicrobial peptides. And actually a lot of creatures have these, including humans, dogs, uh I don't know, pandas, raccoons, they're, they're, they're floating around out in the animal kingdom. The main difference is, is that in Komodo dragons, they have incredibly powerful versions. You know, most of us will have four or five. Komodo dragons have 48, and 47 of these compounds have known, testable, provable, antimicrobial properties. Wow. So the, a team of researchers basically got several samples of the dragon's blood and they synthesized versions of eight of these, then put them up against two strains of lab-grown superbugs, meaning bugs that we, bacteria we developed in a lab that mimic the most common drug-resistant infections we see in the hospital. One of those being the famous MRSA or MRSA, which is a vast problem in a lot of hospitals these days. And Pseudomonas, which is another bacteria that very often can develop a lot of drug resistances. So they took eight of these camp particles from the dragon. They put them up in a plate in a fight-to-the-death cage match between dragon blood and drug-resistant bacteria, and all eight of the compounds were able to kill the Pseudomonas... And seven of the compounds destroyed all trace of both bacteria, which is something that a lot of our antibiotics today simply don't have the power to do. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Typically, when we start antibiotics, we need at least two to three just to cover for everything. So this comes from the Journal of Proteome Research. And the reason that 
researchers think dragons have all these bacteria is because they have a huge biodiverse dense population of even worse bacteria that live in their mouths so in order to prevent the dragons from becoming septic or severely infected every time they feed because they may only eat once every several weeks they bite into a creature all the bacteria in its mouth serve to help decompose and break down these very large meals and all the antibacterial compounds in the blood prevent the dragon from making itself sick with its own saliva. Hmm. You know, it makes me wonder, do Komodo dragons ever get sick? Well, without talking to a vet, it would be hard to tell. The interesting thing about Komodo, Komodo dragons is that for a long time, I mean, I know you're wondering if they get sick, for a long time, it was thought that dragons used the bacteria in their mouth as a form of venom. So they would catch and bite prey, they would flood the wounds with the dirty bacteria in their mouth, and the victim would then die of sepsis. Um, this was felt to be, you know, kind of the main method by which Komodo dragons killed and used bacteria and it is completely utterly false they do have a bunch of horrible bacteria you can get septic but the dragon actually has venom glands loaded with toxins that lower blood pressure cause massive bleeding and induce shock just like snakes and other reptiles so they bite down with the serrated teeth they pull back with neck muscles, so you get big gaping wounds, you have venom that quickens the loss of blood, sends the prey into shock, and you have the bacteria in their mouth that sort of finish the job, and which in some ways even help to sterilize whatever the creature's normal bacteria would be. The Komodo dragon's bacteria outcompete, and then the Komodo dragon's blood can destroy because it is used to having those bacteria that are in the dragon's mouth. Man, that's like a quadruple threat right there. That sounds like our worst nightmare in the ICU. It doesn't really seem as though they get sick all that often, and if they do, they seem to be susceptible to the kinds of infections that you'll see in any reptile, salmonella, of course, being a big one. You know, maybe the mother of dragons will also be the mother of antibiotics, and Daenerys can come to our rescue again. For now, I'll be content with knowing I live in a world where not only do dragons exist, but their blood really does have healing powers. It's like we're in a Dungeons & Dragons adventure. Yeah, imagine that. Speaking of which, I may <laughs> have to keep that in mind. Yeah, see, there you go. So for everybody who loves playing Dungeons & Dragons at home, look, real-world applications. <laughs> so next time, save that dragon blood on your quest and bring it to your local medic, shaman, whatever happens to be in your campaign. You never have too many dragons. But of course, Praz... It's a little bit difficult for you or I to just, you know, jaunt over to Indonesia and secure dragon blood to treat our patients. So where else do you think we might be able to look for new drugs a bit closer to home? Well, you know, the answer might be a lot closer than you might think. Um, in fact, it's a place that all of us, no matter where we are, could easily find this, this hotbed for antimicrobials. And that's, I'm talking about no further than our own highways and roads. Oh, are we finding bacteria just lying on the side of the highway? Actually, we are. Roadkill. Roadkill? 
All right, I need to I need to hear more about this. Tell me how Roadkill is giving us our next antibiotic source because that sure is a lot closer to home than Dragonkind. I'm sure any of us driving within 10 minutes of our homes depending on where we live probably less common in Chicago than it is in um If I'm finding something dead in Chicago on my commute, it's probably due to gun violence and not not roadkill, my friend. (laughs) That sounds about right. Yeah, no, what they've been discovering is that these animals that have been, that are generally not considered very clean animals, whose carcasses have been rotting out in the sun for several hours, may have microorganisms within them that could actually fight off some of our deadliest drug-resistant bacteria. So it sounds like what you're talking about is the microbiome. And and we've, again, referred to microbiomes a couple of times before on this show. And just to give everybody listening at home a quick rundown, a microbiome is a collection of all the bacteria that naturally live in you, right? You're, you're going to hear statistics quoted that you know, whatever arbitrary percent they've decided of your body is made up of bacteria because we have bacteria that live in our gut. We have bacteria that live in our mouths. And these are all symbiotic and not posing any real threat to our health. But the bacteria that make up my composition, the Dr. J bacteria, are still going to be different enough from the Sandman or Dr. Praz bacteria. And the theory behind the microbiomes is if we kind of learn what collection of bacteria live in specific species or within specific individuals within a species, we may... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. may be able to start spotting both trends and using those bacteria which defend themselves against infections common to that species to pull them out and make new drugs, new antibiotics, and new treatments that may have previously helped the native animal and will now help us. How are they sampling microbiomes from roadkill? Does it involve a spatula syringe? I sure hope so. <laughs> oh, that certainly would be... Um... Would be creative, but basically, it's a very relatively involved process. First, they had to look for samples, finding good good specimens to use. Good being a relative term here. I lose the term loosely. Bring um, out your dead. <laughs> the ideal specimen would be a quote healthy living animal but there's a lot of legal and ethical issues that surround that as we could all imagine granted picking up dead animals off a road has some issues with it as well but it's generally a little bit easier to take them and do experiments and try to figure out what we can so basically we find these animals on the road 
and they use a very, very precise scientific, you may have heard of it, a Q-tip. Apparently on dead animals, it's per- perfectly fair game. Teams of scientists working with the U.S. Department of Agriculture are working under the auspice of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, who apparently has final say on roadkill. News to me. But <laughs> the team patrols the highway at 10-hour intervals. It's like, up oh, time to go on a roadkill run. And they want to search for fresh roadkill. So you can't just use any roadkill. It can't have been sitting out. You know, we're not going to find the cure for the next big infection sitting in the middle of a road three weeks after it's been hit. So the carcass has to be fresh, and it has to have at least one remaining intact orifice, such as mouth, a nose, an ear, an eye, a rectum, or the some part of the intestines. And they take the Q-tip and rummage around in this and then take that Q-tip back to the lab. And I think it's making grad students around the world quite squeamish. <laughs> rummage. I like your choice of words there. <laughs> right? You know, just dig around. See what you can find in there. You know, what is that, a skunk? Oh, I bet we can find a lot of good stuff in a skunk. <laughs> well, actually, um, surprisingly enough, you can find a lot of really good cures to, um, to fungal infections. You can find um, solutions that have antibiotic activities against MRSA, which we mentioned earlier. But yeah, no, uh, these um, fluids and these samples are showing a lot of promise in initial studies in the labs. I, I imagine that this sampling method probably raises some eyebrows when you're at a party. You know, what do you do? Oh, I've been studying the cure for cancer. Oh, that's interesting. And, and how about yourself? Oh, I drive up and down the highway looking for roadkill so I can stick it with Q-tips and maybe find some new drug treatments. <laughs> doesn't sound as glamorous, but certainly cancer and MRSA both being big medical issues. Finding a cure for MRSA would be just as big up there as cancer, I would think. I, I'd say so. And, you know, again, to be, to be perfectly fair and to show a degree of science responsibility that I don't have to when we have Dr. Santosh around, there are a lot of great things we can get from studying the microbiome and one of the things that we may learn is new methods of approaching cells as to how to get inside them, uh, new methods of interfering with their DNA. You can get from just a single animal something like two to 3,000 unique bacteria, meaning unique in terms of their genetic material. Uh, you, you know, there'll be three or 400 kinds of E. coli and another two or 300 kinds of staphylococcus and maybe a few viruses, but ones which the animal's been living with and learned to adapt to and created defenses for. And we're looking for what are the defenses the animal created and how can we co-opt them for our own use. And this method of working with roadkill actually gives a degree of safety that you wouldn't necessarily get working in a lab because most of the time when humans are worried about catching diseases from things, it's not normally from dead flesh in and of itself. Dead flesh is pretty sterile. It's all the bacteria that work on decomposing said flesh that pose the infection risks. So this has a lot of real promise and potential, and without a lot of the ethical quandaries that traditional animal testing seems to raise across the board. So I think it's an 
excellent source of looking. It's not as glamorous or as exciting as dragons, but it's a lot handier, easier to access, and probably will be more helpful in the long run. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what kind of results these studies um, produce. Um, look forward to some big things in the future, for sure. Sure, sure. So moving on to our next story, and this is one that just came across my my desk a little bit earlier today, and I am so excited to see where it goes. Now, Praz, you probably have seen more burn victims in, in your career than I've really had a chance to, because a lot of times they will go to hyperbaric chambers, or they'll go to surgery for skin grafts. So... Have you had a chance to work with any burn victims? I did um, most of my experience with burns I did when I was a critical care fellow. I haven't worked in a major trauma or burn unit since then, but I do remember quite vividly. Burns are just a um, horrible, horrible condition to have, especially if they're spread all over the body. I mean, they're extremely painful. They're very much prone to infection whole body is essentially wrapped in band-aids and ointments that need to be changed. And as you can imagine, pulling gauze or any sort of layer of covering off of a raw wound or a fresh burn, no matter how much ointment you use, is going to be very, very uncomfortable. A lot of times they'd have to take their patients to the operating room and put them under full general anesthesia just to change out burn dressings in a humane way. So it's really something. Well, and of course, that's that's assuming that you even have access to skin to do a skin graft because burns, by and large, as you said, are pretty painful. And the treatment really is, it's pretty scarring and disfiguring. So we do try and add additional skin back to a burn area if it's been particularly damaged. But you don't always have that skin available. And so the best some people can hope for is just treatment and avoidance of infection. And you can imagine this is going to be even more of an issue with lack of access to resources in countries that maybe don't have all the same advantages and privileges that we do here in the U.S. Well, one country has found a surprisingly effective alternative and workaround. And it is former Olympic host Brazil. The skin banks in Brazil can meet only 1% of the national demand uh, based on the need to treat and graft to skin. So as a result, most patients in Brazil are usually bandaged with just some gauze and silver sulfadiazine cream. And, you know, it's it's a burn cream because there's silver in it, so the burns don't get infected, but it doesn't help in terms of debriding or clearing infected tissue away or even helping it heal and these gauze and cream dressings have to be changed every day which as you said is pretty painful well enter the humble tilapia a fish that is pretty widely farmed in brazil and in fact if you've bought tilapia in the u.s at any time there's a good chance that your costco based tilapia or some of the others come from fish farms down in the south And most of the time, if you're eating tilapia, you skin the fish and you throw it away because it's not really edible. I mean, it's not poisonous, but it doesn't taste very good. It's kind of stretchy and slimy and not particularly appetizing. But it turns out that this same skin, which we have been tossing away as an appetizer, 
works really well as a bandage. Really? Huh. Yeah, and that same elasticity, due to the amount of collagen and proteins, which are very important for preventing scarring, shows up in large quantities in tilapia skin, even more than human skin. And this is some of the same things that when people take those omega-3 fish oils, some of the same compounds that you find in the fish oil pills are also naturally occurring in fish skin. That's, of course, where we get them. The amount of tension or how much resistance, how much you can pull tilapia skin before it rips or tears, the amount of moisture in it, how well it can hold on to moisture and absorb, is also greater than human skin. So in patients with second-degree burns or higher, the doctors just apply fish skin and leave it on the patient until they naturally form a scar. They add the cream and then they remove the fish skin and you actually get some better wound healing. Now for deep second degree and third degree burns, they do have to change the fish skin a couple times over several weeks of treatment, but still much less than the daily that you were seeing with gauze and cream. And this tilapia treatment in earliest studies is cutting down on the healing time by about several days. I love this. The very first person who was offered this kind of treatment when it first became new was Antonio Dos Santos, a fisherman who was offered the tilapia treatment as part of a clinical trial after he got burned to his whole right arm when a gas canister on his boat exploded. So he went out fishing for the day, suffered an injury, came back in, and they said, give us your catch. We're going to skin it and put it right back on your arm. Huh. I wonder how they thought of that. That's interesting. Really awesome. Yeah. It doesn't say anywhere <laughs> who who first looked at a fish and said, I want to, you know what I bet it is? The Aquaman movie's coming out soon. I think there's just a DC Comics fan somewhere in Brazil who's like, this is one step closer. Any day now, I'm going to be able to have my ocean controlling powers. Don't we all want to be a little bit more like Aquaman? Well, the Jason Momoa Aquaman, and there you go. Another Game of Thrones. <laughs> Uh, now, the initial batches of tilapia skin that were prepared were done at the Federal University of Ceara in uh, Fortaleza, Brazil. Lab technicians first used various sterilizing agents, so they didn't just pull the fish out and start smacking the patients with it. So first, the fish had to be skinned. They were sterilized. Then they were sent to be irradiated to kill any viruses before they were packaged and refrigerated. Once this fish skin is cleaned and treated, it can last for up to two years. So these fish bandages cannot be eaten. They've been irradiated. They've been sterilized. They're great for preventing infection. They're not too good as a snack. So you can't just nibble on your bandages. We haven't quite reached that level of futuristic technique yet. That's the next step. Um, But in the U.S., you know, we usually use donated human skin or pig skin but in countries that have more of a seafood or seafaring based tilapia, it looks like it's starting to make a real stride in, in coming up. So studies are being conducted on the comparative costs of tilapia and conventional burn treatments. And if these clinical trials, which are in human phases, show success, hopefully there'll be a company out there processing the skins on an industrial scale. And then, I don't know, I can only imagine what sort of puns I'm going to have access to. I mean, we'd like to treat you for burns with uh, with cream, but we're going to use fish skin, you know, just for the halibut. 
Well, it beats getting Salmonella. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> uh, I guess you might say patients who are coming in for this treatment are in need of a tuna-up. Well, I guess they could get a little bit better. Well, I guess we should probably move on. Oh, that was so terrible, even for me. <laughs> I have to say, in all seriousness, I am very excited about this. As as somebody who's personally always like cutting and burning themselves in the kitchen, knowing that I have the treatment right there that I'm throwing away in the garbage, um, this is a game changer. And again, we here at Travel Medicine are not encouraging or endorsing the use of your fish skin from Whole Foods or Trader Joe's to slap on to injuries that you may get at home. This is, you know, in terms of wilderness medicine, maybe an emergency field dressing, but it is still being studied and the techniques to sterilize and make it a safe bandage are, while well-established, not yet commercially available. So do yourself a favor. Look up some of the people who have had this done. There are some fantastic pictures that really do look like, you know, Brazil is full of Aquaman waiting to just leap into action. And let's see what new things are going to be occurring. I mean, this has definitely um, been an eye-opener. I had no idea half of these things that we talked about were even possible, let alone being uh, experimented on as we speak. Sure. And that means, with the conclusion of the stories, it is time for a Just the Tip. Before Lent, we of course have to party, and that brings us to this week's Just the Tip from our travel correspondent, Sarah, who is attending Mardi Gras in New Orleans. So let's hear from her, shall we? Hi, this is Sarah, your part-time travel correspondent and your full-time flight attendant. I'm coming to you from New Orleans. I was just down here for Mardi Gras. What I didn't know about Mardi Gras is that it's not just one day. It's not just Fat Tuesday. It goes on for an entire month. It starts just 12 days after Christmas. And there are parades going on every weekend leading up to it, and then the week before, pretty much every day. So if you can make it the weekend before Mardi Gras, great. Anytime you want to go, that's the best time. What you want to get is the WSU Parade Tracker app. That's going to let you know exactly when the parades are in advance. It has the whole schedule for the whole year, actually. So if you want to plan your trip around that, perfect. You also want to stay somewhere in the vicinity of where the parades are that you want to watch because transit is not happening that well. The buses aren't really running. The streetcars are not running because everyone stands where the streetcar goes to watch the parade. That's called the neutral zone. Uber has a bunch of surge pricing. So my best advice is to get out, get out of the populated area and just get a taxi to where you want to go. All right. So stay somewhere close to the parade route. You're going to want to wear closed-toed, really comfortable athletic shoes. There's a lot of garbage that collects after or during the parade, so you want to be careful when you're walking around there and all the cobblestones. What you want to pack, wear stuff that's comfortable, bring a costume, wear stuff that's colorful, glittery, dress up crazy, you know, just go all out. This is your time to let loose. Uh, you can neither stay in the French Quarter, that has the biggest party, it is a little too much for me, but it was really intense. 
and it has the best drinks. You're going to try the gin fizz at the Roosevelt. You get a Sazerac basically anywhere. Try the milk punch at the carousel bar and a French 75. Those are the typical New Orleans cocktails. If you're going to the Garden District, which I highly recommend because it's a little bit more low-key, but you still are right there on the parade route, go to Commander's Palace. It's the finest dining I've ever experienced, the best service with all of the New Orleans classics. All right, hope you have a wonderful Mardi Gras. This is Sarah out. So, sounds like she's having a great time, especially based on that jazz music <laughs> fade-out. Yeah. What do you think, Braz? You've, you've been to New Orleans. Have you been during Mardi Gras? Uh, not during Mardi Gras. It sounds like a party, but um, I haven't gone during that time. I do have to say, though, that New Orleans is always um, a celebration. I was just there a few months ago, and not even close to any... Well, I shouldn't say that. It was during Halloween time, so it was a lot of celebrating there, too. But every night is a party in New Orleans. There's a lot of music, a lot of people walking around um, with alcohol. There's no um, open bottle rule in the streets in New Orleans. I do have to say I am completely with Sarah on the closed-toed shoes. The streets can be extremely, extremely dirty, which is, I guess, what happens when you bring alcohol and a bunch of drunk people out in the middle of the night uh, together. Definitely something we should check out. Well, hopefully everyone enjoyed it. We will be back, of course, next week with another Travel Medicine episode. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. (laughs) (laughs) Me help. With a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories, thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 